Tennis is one of the most popular sports around the world, and there are plenty of people out there betting on it. This podcast gives you an edge over the market thanks to in-depth analysis from our expert guests. Welcome to Advantage Betters. Welcome along, everyone, to Advantage Bettors. It's Roland Garros, this major, and I tell you what, I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm joined by two gentlemen now who will definitely also be looking forward to this major as well. Expert tennis analyst and longtime Pinnacle contributor Dan Weston joins us, as well as returning to the platform, seven-time Grand Slam champion and three-time French Open champion, Matt Willander, uh, thanks for joining us, gentlemen. It's um, going to be a great tournament, and it's just nice that it's back in its rightful spot in the calendar as well, isn't it? Even though it is delayed slightly by um, a week. Um, Matt, first of all, I mean, we, we've got to talk about the French Open with you because you've won it three times. Um, I mean, you must have some really fond memories of Roland Garros. Yeah, really good memories. Um uh, the first time I came there, I played in the juniors in 1981, um, lost in the qualifying, in the pre-qualifying, in the men's tournament, actually. I managed to win the juniors uh, out on court one, and, I, and it was on the last Sunday of the men's final. And I remember winning and then running up and watching Bjorn Borg beat Ivan Lendl in the finals. Uh, and I think Borg won 6-4, maybe even 6-love in the fifth. And he, I'm like, oh my God, that was our Rafa Nadal in those days was Bjorn Borg. And then I was lucky enough that Bjornborg did not play the following year, so I happened to win the men's French Open 1980. <laughs> just so happened to win it, yeah, just casually yeah, just skirt around to, that. Yeah. yeah, you know, though, uh, uh, James, is, uh, there are some really great memories uh, from the French Open, and there's some really painful ones, because in the end, as a professional tennis player, and I'm sure in any, any line of work, uh, you look at your success in one way, and you look at, well, the failures are kind of more painful, but they're bigger lessons. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the most painful loss was most probably in 83. I lost to Yannick Noah, uh, the, the lone Frenchman who was uh, the last Frenchman to win a major, who then became a great friend of mine. And if I would have beaten him, we would have never become great friends. Uh, <laughs> and the Yannick Noah wouldn't have a major. So, you know, it's, uh, it's such, such a great tournament with such a great history. And of course, the last thing I say about it, everyone in Europe grew up on clay. So the clay courts uh, uh, championships and French Open, this is a massive opportunity for these guys. Yeah. And Dan, um, thanks for joining us again here on uh, Advantage yeah. Bettors. Um, I just uh, just want to sort of, uh, are there any standout matches or, or years as a whole for you at the French Open as, as years have gone by? I mean, there must yeah. be some, some of your favourites. Well, unfortunately, I'm a little bit too young to remember Max's run in 1982. <laughs> <laughs> I was three years old. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I actually just want to talk a bit about last year's tournament because while the final was Nadal v Djokovic and Nadal didn't drop a set for the entire tournament, I kind of saw some signs that there might be some progress made by some of the younger players with some future upside. Tsitsipas, uh, Rublev and Sinner are all very talented younger players made at least the quarterfinals last year, each of them. Sinner won 44% of points against Nadal in that quarterfinal loss to him. And that was higher than Djokovic or Schwarzman managed in the final or the semifinals. So kind of uh, maybe hopefully seeing a bit of a narrowing of the gap between Nadal and Djokovic and then the next tier of players, I think is, is really, really important. I think, I think we'll probably come on to that a little bit during the podcast as well. 
I mean, many of the previous events since 2005 when Rafa won his first have been a procession, 13 titles. Uh, but I'm really, really hoping that in the latter stages, say quarterfinals onwards, the business end of the tournament, that things are going to be a little bit more competitive this year. We've seen since lockdown and the tour resuming, I think in July last year, that there's been that slight narrowing of between Nadal, Djokovic and the, the next tier of players. Some of them are breaking through. We've seen some of them win Masters tournaments as well. And it'll be interesting to see if this kind of continues in the French Open uh, in a tournament which has been obviously traditionally dominated by Nadal since, since you know, the last 15, 16 years. Just thinking about, was there an obvious change in terms of style, mats when you played at the French Open because of the clay surface? Was there an obvious conscious change or was it just something that came naturally to you and presumably comes naturally to Rafa as well? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think for us, the French Open, because of the clay, uh, the temperature and the humidity in the air drastically changes the playing surface. Uh, and you could be playing on a clay court there. Uh, and, and the French Open clay is different because it's actually crushed brick. So crushed brick, when it's hot and dry, becomes powder. And that's why we sometimes we have wind gusts and the, and the clay blows up in people's faces around and, and the players have to hang on. They have now... They have that kind of clay in Spain these days in some of the places, Madrid, for example. But what, that, what happens then, it plays like a hard court because underneath that clay, it's actually a hard court and it's, and it's as hard as a hard court and it becomes kind of difficult to slide and the balls absolutely fly through the air over there and they're not picking up any of the clay. Then suddenly, you, the next day you wake up and you got that typical miserable uh, and you guys being um, uh, British, you would know what I'm talking about, but that miserable humid, drizzly weather that professional athletes shouldn't have to be working in. You have to play through the rain and it's cold and the balls are orange and it's heavy. And these are the conditions that, 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 that kind of damage you were talking about where we thought Rafa was going to struggle last year. And what happens? He wins without losing a set. So uh, you have to be willing to adapt to the conditions. And if you're not Rafa Nadal, if you're a normal player like me who was lucky to be successful there, you have to also have luck in the draw because you want to play the right person during, under the right conditions. And that, that's not that easy. You could play somebody like the big old seven-foot John Isner and it's hot and dry. And those tennis balls are bouncing into the stand behind you after the serve. I mean, that's how, how high the bounce becomes. Or you play Diego Schwartzman, like Dan brought up. from, And, and suddenly, and it's heavy. And the ball is bouncing at, at his knee height, and he's only sort of five, seven, five, eight. And suddenly you're in for an absolute grueling sort of four or five hours. So, yes, you have to be willing to adapt. I was going to ask about that, actually, because uh, the, if there was obviously last time it was played September, October, this time's kind of like May, June time. That's going to play into somebody's hands, isn't it? But I suppose you've just kind of contradicted that, Max, by saying, actually, it's not because we saw Rafa and he had absolutely no problems adapting. So that's that's a tricky one, isn't it, this time around? I mean, is it is it going to be different? I mean, I suppose it depends on what weather's around. Yeah, I mean, let me, I know, Dan, you must probably have, have some kind of statistics here on Nadal. I'm, sh I'm actually shocked that he won as easily as he did last year. But it just goes to show that he has had no problem playing on a grass court or or on a hard court. He has no problem playing any surface. The problem he has is that he's not playing quite as well 
when the, the conditions are a little bit heavy and a little bit wet compared to the day before when it was hot and dry. And it takes them just a little bit of a, you know, a 20 minutes, half an hour, maybe the whole match to adjust. But has he lost during those conditions? Yeah, he's lost to Robin Söderling once. And he lost to Novak Djokovic once. And none of those matches were really rainy and wet. They were a little bit colder. But that wasn't the reason he lost. So we, he still hasn't lost in those pure enough conditions. So I don't know what is not good for Nadal. Yeah, Dan, come on, back us up then on that. Have you got anything yeah. that points towards that? I'm sure you do. There's a little glint in your eye that tells me that yeah. there is. So, so I made some notes and some preps and some stats. Okay, so I think what I want to bring up is the fact that the Nadal is like, he's, people call him the king of clay, but I want to be a little bit more specific than that. I think he's the king of slow clay or, or medium slow clay, if you like. And when, when the pace gets a little bit quicker, like he often finds in Madrid, his, his record is less dominant. And, and we noticed, obviously, we spoke already about Rafa not dropping a set last, last year in, in the French Open. And if you look at the stats from last year comparatively to, to previous years, there was a big drop in service points won and aces per game last year in, in, in Royal Garros. And whether that's an effect of it being played at a different time of the year, maybe that contributed to the court speed, I, 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 it's, it's very, very possible. But last, last year, for example, it was 60.2% of service points were won in the men's tournament. Now, from 2014 to 2019 each year, the figures range in a very tight bracket between 61.9% and 62.5%. So that's a notable drop of around 2% last year in, in, in a different time of the year, made the conditions a lot slower. Servers didn't benefit from it as much. We also saw that in the aces per game count as well. So I made some notes on that from 2016 to 2019 in, in French Open, the men's tournament. Average of about 0.38 aces per game. The figures ranged from 0.36 to 0.39. Uh, 2020 dropped to 0.28. So the, it, the big servers and any any kind of player who relies on this server, server oriented players, they they really didn't get as much benefit from it. And the slow, it, the numbers bear out the fact that there was some very slow conditions in 2020, and that played into Nadal's hands, and I think was probably a contributory factor towards his dominance. Just, um, we're going to go through some of the prime contenders, actually, Dan, um, and Matt's just very shortly. Um, hold on, hold on, James, hold on. I'm actually going to go and get my rackets. I'm going to, I'm going to return to, to, to tour, James. I need <laughs> these numbers, Dan. I needed them 30 years ago. I didn't realize that that's, that was the key. I mean, that is so huge to hear that. Yeah. Because we always say that, that, you know, the slower courts, if you have a big serve, you actually, it doesn't really matter. You still win points on your big serve. Well, there you go. Yeah, you do, but not as many. Yeah, that, that, and that's the thing. And then we saw this sort of flip side in Madrid in the quicker conditions. Someone like yeah. John Isner getting to the quarterfinals, three underdog wins. And uh, yeah, he, and he benefited from those quicker conditions to, to assist his serve, for sure. So are you saying that actually, you know, when people are looking at this, you know, our pinnacle listeners who are trying to get the edge in the betting market, Dan, they really need to be factoring in some of those conditions looking at what weather's around not just for that day but yeah. for the remainder of that week um looking at what side of the draw they're on you know if they might be playing one day might be having a rest day when actually the weather's bad and it might be really hot the following day is that the kind of thing that we need to be factoring in actually into some of our picks yeah particularly in the men's tournament as well it's obviously seven potential best of five set matches it's matches which often could last over four hours as well this is the extreme test of fitness. Um, 
the, the match that I, I, I always kind of refer to was, I can't remember what year it was in, but it was about five years or so ago when uh, Andy Murray was two sets up against Gail Monfils, uh, got pulled back to a decider and then ended up having to play Rafa straight away afterwards. And it was just, he couldn't, he couldn't back it up because of the, the fatigue from the five-setter in the, the previous round. So I try and look at players who I think are going to be able to get through the early stages quite comfortably, not waste fatigue, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and um, generally speaking, they're players who have a better record on return than, than average. They're above average returners. Uh, they tend to get the sets won a little bit quicker. Set matches don't go to five sets as much. There's not those various heavy sets of matches like tie breaks and uh, maybe like single break sets, which last a lot longer oftentimes. So we want to find players who maybe can win those early early rounds by like double break sets, six six one, six two type sets quite quite often. Get the, get the matches done quickly. Get through to the next round. Um, so I, I, I say I'm looking at players who are better than average on return, which was one of my kind of concerns. I've, I've mentioned in previous pods with you guys about Stefanos Tsitsipas in previous years, but he's he's actually improving a little bit on return now. So I think we can take that caveat away from him a little bit. But certainly players like um, I mean, Roger Federer has written himself off already this kind of this this year already, and and someone also like Daniel Medvedev as well, who 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 one he has a bad clay, a clay record, but two also he if you profile the map, the tournaments that he's done well, they tend to be in quicker than average conditions, and he struggles a little bit more in slower conditions. I think he made a random run in a in a clay Masters a year or two ago, and that was completely out of the blue. I didn't expect that. I didn't see that coming at all from him because his record in slow tournaments is generally really quite poor. So that, so finding a couple of players that maybe you can draw a line through to get some value on someone else is probably quite a key consideration as well. Interesting. And Matt, you know, you know, when you're just drawing on what Dan's saying there, was that something that you found, I mean, throughout your tennis career, not just in the Grand Slams, but if you could just get through the first couple of rounds really comfortably, that then gave you a massive advantage at the business end of the tournament, just by saving your legs and, and saving some of that energy. Um, and I know that you have the recovery days and stuff, but it's actually not enough, is it? We, we see this with Novak, actually, don't we, now, where he literally spends 24 hours recovering, ice baths, drinks, all the things to try and get his muscles right. Was that something that you found then, was it? Yeah, it's, it's a complete roller coaster. Uh, and, um, and you literally play every match. Um, I mean, I know athletes and tennis players, we're trying, we're trying to stay in the present moment but you, you can't really because you're thinking well hold on a second do i really fight to to come back i'm up two sets to one and i'm down four one in the fourth set now it's risky to go to five but if i if i go to five and i win this match i'm playing this guy in two days that i might have to let you know spend another four hours so you you and you really think about that and it's hard not to and i think it's important uh, to have that uh, bigger goal that each individual match is obviously uh, uh, and each point is important but it's the bigger picture and it's playing the right tactical match that's going to uh, save your energy so i couldn't agree more along with that comes um, you know the looking at the draw ahead of ahead of time what kind of conditions uh is rafa going to be pushed against uh, somebody who who plays forever and then does he go up against a John Isner or somebody like that two days later in the condition? I mean, that makes a massive difference, massive difference. And to the players, it's a absolute nightmare to not know exactly what the conditions are going to be like. Because let's face it, you play Wimbledon or on hard courts at the U.S. Open, Australian Open, you know it's not raining. 
But these days, it could be indoors in those tournaments. So that's also a big change. So I think players are pretty capable, um, more capable these days when I talk about Novak and Rafa. And I can't believe you said that about Roger. He's written himself up. That's, that's <laughs> so, yeah, I just love that he's back playing. I can't wait to see him play at the French Open. I think Roger is going to have a, a good summer. I agree, he most probably won't um, be that keen to, to do too well at the French Open, but it's great to have the three back. Mm. Yeah, it makes it a proper Grand Slam, doesn't it? Now, look, we'll go through some of our picks then from both the men's and the women's draw, but it's just worth pointing out, actually, the two reigning Roland Garros champions, Rafa and Iger uh, Swiatek, both made sure that they will be arriving in Paris with sky-high confidence, won't they, after completing impressive title runs um, in Italy. And, I mean, it's hard to look past either of them. We'll go through the women's draw, actually, now, um, because, you know, you've got Sophia Kenin, you've got Ash Barty, the world number one, you've got Sabalenka, who beat Barty, actually, in the Madrid Open final. And uh, Dan mentioned her in the Australian Open preview as well, actually. Uh, Naomi Osaka, Simona Halep. I mean, it's, it's an embarrassment of riches in the women's game, isn't it, in terms of um, competitive players? Um, Matt, I mean, who, who is really catching your eye at the moment with not only their form, but their potential? I think the three you mentioned, Iga Swantek, of course, Ash Barty. Uh, she obviously pulled out of uh, the Italian Open there in a, in a match against Coco Goff, I believe it was. But, I mean, she's, she's made a commitment by coming over to Europe and playing the clay courts. And, and she went over to Miami, played on hard courts there. So she's made a commitment to be on the road for the next five, six months. Uh, and uh, I think that she's going she's gonna to remain number one in the world throughout uh, through the U.S. Open. I'm, I'm not sure which major she will win, but I think she will win one out of the French. I thought she'd win Wimbledon before the French. And then, of course, hard courts is, is a great surface for her, too. So she's tough. Iga Swantik. I don't even know how to look at somebody like that because you have to, you can factor in, you know, the, the, the statistics and the numbers and you can factor in the fact that she won the French Open last year. But how do you predict somebody's form who's so darn good when she's good? How do you predict what she's going to be in three weeks from now? Because that's when she's going to be sort of playing the big matches. I can't do it. I have no idea. She might be the next sort of Serena Williams who doesn't lose on clay or the next Rafa Nadal for that matter doesn't lose at all so I think that's really tough I think that uh, Coco Goff I sort of throw out and again I'm interested to hear what you have to say Dan because mm. you can go back and look at numbers or whatever she's starting to win matches she's to me the first sort of well if apart from Iga Swante because I think she was only 19 when she won last year yeah Coco Goff is the next sort of or the first really 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 young player who I could actually see hosting the trophy at French Open. I think Wimbledon is too tough. I think the US Open, there's too many good hardcore players. But on clay, the women are not quite as, as, as a good on clay compared to the men because of their movement. Sliding is harder for women than men. They can't really hang in the point, slice a backhand as well as the men can. So the ball strikers are a little bit better. Uh, uh, more likely to succeed on a clay court. But so somebody like Coco Goff is going to be tough, but I'd be interested. I can't pick the women's, I swear. I've always said that I am so happy that I'm a man playing professional tennis in the slams because we have an hour of time early in the match when you go, okay, I don't have to win the first hour. In fact, I don't even mind losing the first set. 
I'm good. Yeah. An hour is six, four, two, one down. Yeah, I'm coming back. Hold on. I got three more hours in me. On the women's side, one hour into a match, you're down six, three, three love potentially. And you're three, <laughs> four, three games away from being out. So that nervousness that you feel before the match, that's what is so tough on the women's uh, side these days because they also serve big these days. So women's matches are more often than not one break a set. And that never used to be. Steffi Graf and these girls, they were winning 6-1, 6-1, 6-2, 6-2. I mean, 6-3, 6-3 for Steffi Graf or Serena Williams. That was a close match back then. That doesn't happen anymore on the women's side. So, I mean, I would be a, a wreck emotionally if I was... Uh, I was a woman trying to play in the slams these days. <laughs> Dan, I mean, Matt's just said he doesn't even want to try and predict uh, the women's winner, uh, Roland Garros. I, I mean, how do you go about giving some of the listeners to this podcast a bit of an advantage in that market? How do yeah. you go about that? Because you must have some numbers, you must have some kind of idea. Um, and I'm absolutely yeah. fascinated to hear it. Well, I think... I've written a lot in the pinnacle, po- uh, pre- pinnacle previews of Grand Slams in, in the past that I love the women's tournament because literally there's 20 or 30 players who will have realistic expectations of getting to like the quarterfinals or, or better. Uh, and it's such an open event that I, 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 I love the tournaments because you, know, you don't get the dominance of, of a Nadal or a Djokovic. You have players who literally can come from nothing like Suartek did to some extent last year and, and win the tournament. On the subject of Swiss, I, I, I want to kind of talk a little bit about her background and her numbers and stuff. Um, so actually, she was someone who was, it was super obvious from her ITF numbers that this was a player on who had a massive, massive ceiling. Like she, she literally could, could have achieved anything. And obviously, it doesn't always work out like that. So someone like Cece Bellis, for example, a few years ago, she had the similar kind of numbers but then she got injuries and it kind of derailed her career a little bit so it is not an exact science predicting where a player is going to be in two or three years time but but we can we can kind of look at general levels of improvement as players get older most players tend to do the bulk of their improvement by the time they're 23 uh, and then it slows down a little bit from there um but someone like Clara Towson might be like a year or two behind Swiatek right now, but she, she's someone who I've got an eye on in that respect as well. Um, but anyway, Swiatek's numbers, if we look at 12-month clay numbers in isolation, she's running at over 10% more of combined service and return points won than any other player on the tour, wow. which is incredible. I mean, that's, Matt's talked a little bit earlier about the Serena Williams level of dominance and, and that's peak Williams dominance over the field right now, right there. And the thing is, you know, Swiatek at the moment, I just check the prices. She's 3.91 with, with Pinnacle right now. Yeah. And um, that comparatively to Serena Williams in the past, Serena Williams is off and odds on. So that really does suggest that if, if those numbers hold, then Swiatek could even be a value favorite for this tournament. Yeah. And, and also, she's, she's actually winning more return points than her opponents are winning service points in the 12-month period, which is truly incredible. I mean, this just doesn't happen. So, so n- numbers-wise, she is the clear favourite in my view. And obviously, obviously her, her performance in Rome last week kind of rubber stamps that as well in terms of, you know, she, she couldn't have been more dominant and, and coming into the tournament in... in in such such good level. Um, regarding Coco Goff, uh, which obviously Matt, Matt's talked about about as well, 
it's, it's so difficult because I'm torn between the golf, the golf of the present versus the golf of the future. And I, 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 at this point in time, obviously she's just turned 17, I'm not a massive buyer of her it, it, at this level, at this stage of her career. Um, if we look at like, the, the matches that she's played over so long, this, this year so far, what I find is that she, she tends to be very, very good at winning close matches. But the problem is, is and, and I'd love to hear Matt's insight on this as well from a, from a, from a playing perspective. From my analysis previously, it is very, very difficult for players to sustain that ability in the long run, or even the medium term. It's very, very difficult for players to overperform on break points or be particularly clutch on break points over a long period of time. And the vast majority of players, I think Nick Kyrgios would be a real exception to this rule, um, but there's not many exceptions, is that most players tend to then mean revert to their service return points one expectations on, on break points. So to give you some context, um, uh, a men's player will, on average, uh, save break points at a rate of about 2.8% less than their service points one percentage. And they'll convert break points at around 2.8% more than their return points, one percentage, over, over a long period of time, so like a three-year period. They're, and it's a very, very rare to see a player plus or minus 1% on expectations. Curiosity said was one outlier, there's not many. And that's my kind of concern right now with golf, is that is it really sustainable to be winning those tight matches on a regular basis? But we have to remember, she's just turned 17. The ceiling is massive. And it's so dangerous to write off young players as well. The, the, we saw that last year with Swiatek as well. You, yeah. Literally anything is possible. And, and while I'm not a massive buyer at golf, golf's value, generally on a match-to-match basis right now, there's nothing saying that in a year's time that situation won't change. It could be quicker than a year, it could be longer than a year, but this is a player who's obviously extremely talented and, and is going to achieve a lot in, in, the, in the sport. But whether she's valued right now, I'm not so convinced. I think also as well, we've got to remember is a lot of the bookies and people who are making the odds are actually scared of her um, in terms of the fact that they are expecting her to see this trend in improvement. I mean, Matt, give us your opinion on Coco Golf because is that sustainable? And also, I mean, she is going to be some player, isn't she? I mean, there's no way to, two ways about that. She is going to be good. It's just a case of kind of when she gets to that elite level. I mean, we could see it this, you know, this month, but who knows? Yeah, so I wasn't a huge Coco Goff. Obviously, when she broke through at Wimbledon in uh, in 2019 and she played that match on a center court and, and I think the other one was in court one and she came back and she was slicing forehands and we were all like, how can a 15-year-old be that savvy? Uh, and, and she was. And I thought, oh my God, this, is, this girl is unbelievable. But she physically was not 15. She physically was sort of 20, 21 when she was 15. So I took, so I was like, okay, let's hold on a second. And then she, she, after that, came on tour. Of course, she plays a limited schedule, and she was making a bunch of double faults. I thought she was going too hard. She's too risky for a 15-year-old. And I didn't see the qualities that you see in a, in a Grand Slam champion, or, or not just a single Grand Slam champion, but somebody that wins multiple slams becomes world number one. I didn't see those qualities with Coco Goff. Now I see them, and they're mental. Because physically, at some point, the physicality, they can only take you so far. It's the, the mind that will take you to the absolute, um, the, the top of the game on both the men's and women's. I don't care what you say about Serena Williams. She has a big serve and she's strong and she hits the ball hard. 
Yeah, but we don't see what's on the inside. And the, and the inside is where she wins uh, 23 slams and hopefully a 24th this year. So I think Coco Goff, and I completely agree with Dan. And I think for me, what Dan's talking about here, Dan, it's exactly what I'm looking for. That's exactly it. It's like, oh, wow, you just told me that. So I think that's the difference. And I think that these, and it's so interesting to hear you, Dan, talk about these percentages that we cannot really make a difference. Yes, of course it does. It's a point here and there. It's a putt here and there. If you're a golf pro, you know, it's two four-footers a week, and then suddenly you're a major champion in tennis. It's a, it's a point in the tiebreaker and you're two sets to one up. And now, so I, I think that Coco Goff is showing those signs by winning these close matches. And how long can she keep winning the big points? Turns out that the great champions, they win big points more often than not. And, and I'm for the first time seeing Coco Goff, that side to her. The other thing that I really like about her, she doesn't seem to be overcoached from the sideline. I think she's figuring out things on her own. Uh, I, her prayers box is not overly involved. So she's out there. She's fighting the fight on her own with the support of her dad and her mom when she's there, um, which don't get me started with a parent coaching thing. But uh, they seem to have a great, great relationship. And she's actually taking uh, responsibility. So I really like her for that reason. I do agree that it might be slightly early, but she, she did play a pretty close first set with Iga Swatek at the Italian Open. And I didn't watch the end of that match, but um, then, of course, I heard that Swatek won that. But I thought that was a pretty good first set. So is it time? I mean, is that record ever going to be broken? The youngest Grand Slam winner uh, on the men's side is Michael Chang still. That's in 1989. Uh, Martina Hingis on the women's side. I mean, records are there to be broken. Serena Williams has broken the record. Uh, for wins in the open era. And Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal have broken the record. So why can't the youngest champion, why can't that record be broken? I know that Coco Goff won't break the Martina Hingis record, but she'll be the youngest in a very, very, very long time. Yeah. And uh, you know what? It makes for really interesting, doesn't it? I mean, we've not even, you know, we talk about some of the other names, you know, Swiatek, um, and, and then we've got obviously Kenin Barty, Sabalenka, Osaka, Halep. I mean, this, it, that's the thing. It's so open, isn't it? It's so, so open. I mean, we can come back to those at the end, Dan, and if you want to give us some of your absolute sort of tips at value prices. But we'll have a look at some of the ATP contenders now. Um, we've got Dominic Team, US Open winner, two-time French Open finalist. Novak, of course, doesn't really need any of the kind of introduction there. We've got Sitsipas, Monte Carlo, Masters winner, you've got to remember, on clay. Uh, Medvedev, who you mentioned a little bit earlier on, who's just sort of hitting the straps a little bit. Um, Zverev, um, Schwartzman as well, return of Roger Federer. I mean, it's it's going to be exciting. It's difficult to look past Rafa. Of course it is, particularly since he dominated so heavily in Rome. And those statistics that you gave earlier, Dan, are amazing. But any kind of potential names that leap off the page at you, um, uh, we'll start with Dan when, when, when you're looking at this just sort of based on the numbers really yeah I mean for me the draw is critical and it's especially when you have some some talented players who are going to be in the sort of either lower echelons of the seeds or, or even unseeded but that, that the draw is really critical to determining value in my opinion um, I'm not convinced about massive value early on right now um, but like I said, there's players like Medvedev, uh, Federer, who I'm quite willing to draw a line through at this point in time. Um, a couple of other players that, that you didn't mention, James, 
Andre Rublev, who won, uh, got to the final of Monte Carlo losing sits pass, has had a, a really great 18 months or so. Um, I think he won five titles last year, which was an incredible effort in the shortened season. Um, Yannick Sinner, who, and when you look at his, his recent losses, they're against a very high calibre of opposition as well. Djokovic, Sitsipas, Nadal. So, so you can forgive him for, for some recent exits as well in tournaments. His numbers are, are, are good and improving, and that's important too for me. Um, a couple of other players who are maybe a little bit further down in the markets. Uh, I have been keeping a close eye on Matteo Berrettini as well because his numbers have been, been good. Uh, one in Belgrade, lost in the final of Madrid to, to Alexander Sverev. Uh, I, I, I actually have him as, my numbers have hit Berrettini as the, uh, very, very close between a couple of players, but uh, fifth best clay quarter on tour right now. Uh, and um, another player that I want to keep close on, but I'm worried a little bit about his wrist injury, which forced a retire, uh, retire, uh, withdrawal in Rome, is Casper uh, Rude as well, who's a, a clay... I would say Clay, not Clay specialist, he's certainly improving in his all-court game, but Clay will be his preferred surface. So, so, so someone like that would be, he's a dangerous player to draw in the early rounds when they're a bit underprepared perhaps as well, and he could cause a shock uh, towards the, you know, to get to be, be a big name and get to the later stages. Yeah. And Matt, what about yourself? I mean, is there any names that jump off the page at you when you have a look? Yeah. I mean, it's so true because... You can even throw in Denis Shapovalov, a uh, great talented lefty Canadian. Uh, Felix Auger-Aliassime, of course, best friends of Denis Shapovalov, also Canadian. Both young and promising. And I do, I, I think it's, it's correct. I feel like every year, um, <laughs> of course, Rafa Nadal is getting older, but these guys, they are so good physically, the, the younger generation. They hit the ball so well. They hit it hard. They're kind of fearless. I mean, they're not beating... Uh, these these uh, the big three in majors uh, quite yet, but I think they don't they haven't that record of having won one match out of sort of ten. You look at someone like Marin Cilic, I think he's one nineteen against all the three big the big three, and he just can't beat them. And he's he's won a major, and they don't have that uh, deficit yet. So I feel like they all feel like they can take a chunk out of it, whether it's Rafa or whether it's Novak. And if they all take a set or they, they hold on to Nadal for an extra half an hour, 45 minutes in each round, at some point Nadal will feel the effects of that. And then you could be the lucky person on the other side of the net that day. So I think all the names that Dan that you bring up, uh, they're dangerous. Casper Rude definitely thinks that he has a chance to beat Rafa Nadal until he realizes that he can't. But in the past, they have realized that they can't before they even enter the court. They're sitting in the locker room and they know they can't beat Nadal. There's no chance. I know that feeling that Nadal must have, or at least had, uh, some matches you go in on clay and you say, well, hold on, there's zero chance that I'm losing to this guy. And I'm not being cocky, but it's just not happening. And I know that Nadal is not feeling that way these days. He claims that he never was because he's so humble that he always respected his opponents. But I do feel like 
we've seen enough of him in this Claypool season that he's slightly uh, afraid. He doesn't come out with a, a whole lot of confidence early in matches. And that's going to improve with each match win that he has for sure. And of course, now he'll be as ready as he can be. But I don't think he's as ready as he has been in the past. And these guys are good. I mean, Denis Shapovalov in Rome had match points against Rafa Nadal and should have won it. And I don't know how Nadal survives that. And then, of course, he goes ahead and wins the tournament. So they're very close um, in beating Nadal. And in their own mind, they all think so. So those names are great. I think that for me these days, the clay court tennis on the men's side is the best tennis that you're going to see. The, the men's draw is going to be fascinating at this tournament. But this is, there's another thing to factor in here, isn't the chaps? Because... And Dan, you might have some stats on this again, but it's one of these immeasurables, isn't it? I talk about this a lot on some of the podcasts to do with Pinnacle. And it's the immeasurables, things that you can't actually really ha- have any stats on. But there was supporters in at the Australian Open for some days. And then there was a little sort of five or six day period. I can't remember the exact ins and outs of it where it was empty. And then there were supporters back in for the last sort of couple of rounds. How does that affect things? Because my gut instinct is that as a younger player, um, perhaps who might be playing one of their first Grand Slams, he might be looking around thinking, oh my word, there's all these people here. And it might sort of, I don't know, shake them up a little bit. Um, but I'll ask you about this, Matt, first of all. Um, part of playing professional tennis, I'm, I'm surely is to entertain the crowd. I mean, you, you loved it as a player. You, you enjoyed the crowd being there. And when you're sort of going toe-to-toe with a rival, there's nothing better than a crowd sort of being there. But equally, you spend a lot of time on training courts when there's nobody there. So does it help or, or does it hinder? Well, it depends on who you are, I think. Um, and I think that's the most interesting thing with this whole, this whole year, basically, uh, when we came to the US Open and we saw that Novak Djokovic absolutely lost his temper against uh, Pablo Carreño Busta. He was a big favorite to win, and uh, he slammed one ball into the side of the court, didn't get a warning, and then he slammed another one or, th- or hit another one, and it happened to hit the, the line umpire uh, in, in the throat. And, of course, uh, she went down, and he was defaulted. Now, he would have, if there were people there, he would have been warned after the first incident, and then he, the second incident would have never happened. And we kind of started thinking, Oh, this might be a time here for the for the youngsters because maybe Novak really needs the crowd. Maybe Rafa, you know, of course, Roger Federer hasn't played uh, since uh, since the pandemic, pretty much, and nothing changed because then Rafa wins the French Open and then Novak wins the Australian <laughs> Open, so they don't really care because they're so not into that feeling of I'm not losing to you across the net, and I don't care if anyone's watching. I'm watching myself and i'm not losing to you so i think to them it doesn't matter but i think to the young guys it matters a whole lot because if you get in there and i've i've experienced this uh in majors against uh, uh not maybe at the french open so much but in other majors you get into center court philip chatrier and you're playing against rafa nadal you are worried about not winning games and you could be a hell of a Claypool player. You could be a top 50 player easily. You can be better than that. And you get in there and you realize that this ball is bouncing way higher than I could have ever imagined. These people in the stands, and they're not booing, but the French have a way 
of showing their disappointment that is very, very hard to ignore as a player. And I've been there uh, definitely in sets and some matches. Uh, I think that the crowd is not helping the young players. Mm. I think the old players, they are going to go, oh my, I'm so glad these guys, thank you people, you're back. I think Tsitsipas deals with it really well, no problem. I think players like Andrei Rublev, big problem, because you're going to have to have more variety than Andrei, Andrei Rublev to win on clay in five sets. I think Sasha Zverev, loves being there with not many people and no one's really worrying about his second serve being a problem at times and he's kind of doing the practice set and he's going for the second serve. Suddenly you're going to be people in there watching and I, so I think the young guys, uh, it's not going to help them when they play the older guys. But uh, I think someone like Stefano Tsitsipas, I'm really hot on Tsitsipas because I think that he is obsessed yeah. with winning tennis matches. He needs to win tennis matches and big tournaments to be a happy, humble person. When I see him, he's, he's so crazy on the court. And I think that's a sign of somebody who needs to win tennis matches. The other guys, they want to win. But I think Tsitsipas, but the crowd, I love the fact that they're back. It doesn't have to be full. That's the coolest thing. It only has to be some people in there to make the player feel like, oh, okay, whoa, I, I'm starting to sort of feel the crowd here and they feed off of it big time. Serena Williams is one I worry about. I know we're talking about the men, but that's somebody that I worry about playing in front of a crowd because she has not played well lately, and now there's a crowd that is expecting her to. So Roger Federer, that's why I bring up Serena. <laughs> it's not going to be easy for him suddenly to come from practicing in front of nobody, and now, whoa, what are you guys doing here? I thought I was here kind of slowly, you know, moving into, no, Roger, we're here. We're watching you. You know, that's a tough one. Surely that's where experience comes in, I'd imagine. I, I mean, Dan, this is the point, Matts, by the way, where Dan tells us, well, the stats say that it's, uh, it makes no difference at all. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure if there is any particular measurable yeah. data for that. Um, I, I, I don't know. You tell me. You can't quantify it, I don't think. I think it's impossible to quantify. Um, certainly, uh, one thing I did try and quantify before was like the effects of the home crowd in terms of players playing in their own country with perhaps a biased home crowd. Uh, and that was, I generally found that the market, the betting market overvalued players playing at home very, very slightly because they, I think that maybe the market expected there to be a, a more of a profound effect in playing in front of your home supporters than, you know, maybe like a bit like soccer, for example, where, where yeah. you know, there's a big advantage to playing at home. Uh, it's not quite as apparent, I don't think, in tennis. Um, with regards to the crowd versus no crowd debate, I think that's so difficult to quantify. And, and as Max has said, maybe it's, it's quite individual for the who the players are and their own kind of personalities the, the, as to whether, whether there's something to read into. As, as, but on a general rule of thumb, I think that's very, very difficult to quantify. Pretty much impossible. Let me, before, uh, James, I'm going to interrupt you. I was nearly interrupting you, Dad. You know what's so incredible? That the big three are still playing. And of course, the big four are still playing because Andy Murray is still out there. That's the most incredible part mm -hmm. of Andy Murray is that he won Wimbledon two times. Yeah. And he won the Olympics in front of a home crowd. And you exactly. haven't had a winner in so many years. So the fact that he did that on home soil, because I agree with you, Dan, it is so tough to play tennis when everybody wants you to win. And yeah. he actually played better 
with a crowd behind him. So, I mean, that's why Andy Murray is, is rated most probably higher than myself, even. Seriously, even though I have seven majors and Murray has only three, I'm going to put him ahead of me in terms of achievement. And I'm going to put him up there with Andre Agassi and, and these guys because he played against the three best players of all time, but like by far the three best players. And he's, and he's way closer to sort of the top seven, eight of all time than people give him credit for. And, and because of Wimbledon winning at home, I, didn't, I mean, that's an incredible record. So I agree, home court advantage in tennis is <laughs> it's not a great thing for most people. You know, I've said that before as well, Max, that if Murray was playing in a different era, he could have maybe won like double digit Grand Slam titles. And I mean, yeah, obviously you agree with that as well. So it's so interesting to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. That is fascinating. Gents, I think that that is probably, I mean, look, we could go on for ages and ages. I think our poor listeners might just, you know, get a bit annoyed with us if we did. But I think actually it's been, um, it's going to be such a fascinating tournament. It's hard to look past Rafa in the men's draw, isn't it? Of course, particularly if there's a bit of weather around um, at Roland Garros. The women's draw is where the excitement and unpredictability lies. But um, I just want to get um, some final thoughts from Max in a second. But then, Dan, I just for our punters who are listening to these podcasts and they're trying to get the edge in the market, I know we've talked about the weather. I know we've talked about form and getting through the early rounds relatively unscathed. Yeah. Um, how can our folk get the edge in the market um, ahead of this French Open specifically? Yeah, it's, it's not an easy job um, because the markets are pretty difficult to beat. Um, but I think that's indicative of the amount of research that people would have to put in to, to get themselves to that kind of level where, where they'd be pretty confident of doing so. Um, we've spoken a lot about some of the considerations already. I, I would also, just on a general point of view, I would look at uh, players who have had a strong clay performance this year, uh, strong general performances this year. And what I want to look at as well with players is understanding their potential upside. For example, could a young player really kick on? We've spoken about a few young players already on this pod. Uh, also, which players have the lower ceilings and struggle against top players? So, Matt's mentioned Marin Cilic earlier, who had a poor record against the elite players. Uh, and that's a good example of that. There's probably some, someone like Roberto Bautista Guz, probably fairly similar in that, in that respect as well. You know, you, know you, you can rely on these guys to make like quarterfinals, fourth rounds, but when, they, when it comes to the crunch and they're playing an elite player in a grand slam, that's very, very difficult to, 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 to have them on side. Um, for the, for the men's tournament, I think I said earlier as well, I particularly prefer players with an above-average return data um, because they tend to play their shorter matches and sets so they don't accumulate that fatigue that the big servers who play often play four-plus-hour matches are, are, are accumulating. And French Open as well is probably more of an arduous test of fitness than any other slam with longer points on average as well. So any player without fit, with fitness issues should just be completely... You know, avoided full stop, I think. Um, with regards to, I don't know if this is where you want me to talk about, uh, there's any more uh, wild cards in the draw that I wanted to mention because we kind of skipped off that with the women's a little bit. Yeah, of course. Yeah, go for it. it I don't think she's going to win it by any means, but I think someone who maybe like a value, value player that you can maybe like hedge off a bit later on, maybe depending on the draw. I've got my eye on someone, uh, a young Spanish player called Paula Badosa who has done really, really well on clay this year. 
Uh, statistically, she's actually winning about 48% of return points on clay in the last 12 months, wow. which is huge, absolutely huge. She, she got to the semifinal of Charleston, losing to Kudimetova. She, she reached the semifinal of Madrid, lost to, to Barty. She's playing in Belgrade this week as well. Uh, and so, yeah, someone, someone who's a bit out of, out of the blue player, if that makes sense. You know, someone who maybe people haven't really considered. In fact, I think the, the, the traders of Pinnacle haven't considered her either because she's currently not in the market. Wow. But, uh, I think you might be able to get about 60, maybe 70 on her um, at the moment. So, so there's, there's some, maybe some a value player that maybe you might think, okay, well, comes out of nowhere to get to, the, say, the quarterfinals or something like that. That's a great little tip, that, Dan. Love to see that. And just remember, factor in the weather, factor in that fatigue as well. Um, Matt's final I mean look it's going to be a brilliant tournament as it always is it's got that great feel to it even though look you know you're covering it for Eurosport as you usually do with the uh, Grand Slams but unfortunately you won't be able to soak up that Parisian atmosphere No I will be in the studio in um, uh, just outside of London for Eurosport they they, uh, still are sort of hesitant to send too many people to the tournaments but but I'm just thinking that you know We've had such a such a, a, a disastrous year, of course, in the world with with everything. Uh, so the fact that professional sports and professional tennis has suffered that's kind of irrelevant uh, in the big picture, obviously. But we are sitting here uh, a week, uh, a little more away from the start of Roland Garros in 2021. We have Rafa on 20 Grand Slams. We got Roger on 20 Grand Slams. We got Novak on 18. So hold on, Novak wins Wimbledon and Novak wins the US Open. He's got 20 as well. So suddenly we're talking about the winner of the French Open is most probably going to be the best player in the history of men's tennis because I don't know if I back Roger to win another major. I don't know how many more majors Rafa can win on other surfaces. He might have another one in him on clay. I'm not sure. I think Novak has, I mean, I don't even know what, what the limit is there. But it is a huge year. And then... Serena Williams is looking to win her 24th. And if she doesn't do it this year, I'm starting to sort of think of her like I do of Roger Federer, that I think they can beat the best players in the world, but can they win seven matches over two weeks? Very questionable at their age. And uh, uh, so I'm looking, I'm sitting, I know I'm not going to be there, but what a great next three slams we have in, in professional tennis, both in the men's and women's, because really at the end of 2021, we're more than likely we have the answer to the forever question, who's the greatest female and male tennis player of all time? I'm telling you, in, at the end of September, we'll have that answer. Absolute pleasure. Great to get the thoughts from you, Matt, and Dan as well. It's been an absolute, I mean, wow. We, like I said, we could have talked for much longer about it, um, but for the purposes of just, you know, timings and normal life, we won't. Um, safe travels over here, Matt. Um, and Dan, thanks so much. Enjoy. And you can follow Dan as well for more stats on Twitter at Tennis Ratings as well. Um, you can keep an eye for Dan's French Open previews as well, coming soon at pinnacle.com. Uh, pinnacle.betting on Instagram and remember to keep an eye out for the PGA Championship, the Pinnacle Cup, as well, of course, as the French Open. Please remember to gamble responsibly, but more importantly, thanks for listening.